This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Dan Loney. Welcome back. Hour number two of Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. The battle against ISIS in places like Iraq, Turkey, and Iran has been a very tough and long fight. But the recent retaking of Mosul showed hope. In the process, a partnership was born out of significant problems presented by ISIS, that the that of the Kurdistan regional government and Iraq. But that partnership is being tested right now, and much of the dispute surrounds a city by the name of Kirkuk. Brendan O'Leary is a professor of political science here at the University of Pennsylvania, recently visiting that region, and he joins us now to discuss what is going on. Brendan, great to see you again. Good morning, Dan. So give us an overview for those people that that don't follow this closely of what is going on over there. Number one, the Kurdistan region recently conducted a peaceful and democratic referendum in which uh, 93% of people voted yes to an independent Kurdistan. Within two weeks, that uh, effort was violently um, coerced by the federal Iraqi government in collaboration with Shia militia inside Iraq that are Iranian-trained and Iranian-run. There was an important internal disagreement among the major Kurdish political parties. One of these parties, a faction within that party, led by members of the Talabani family, whom people might remember because Mm -hmm. Talabani is a former president of Iraq. That faction collaborated with Iranian intelligence and with the federal Iraqi government to remove key officers from the Peshmerga in the area surrounding Kirkuk. That enabled the frontline Kurdish defense to be outflanked, and in response, the Kurdistan regional government withdrew all its troops from the relevant area. And since that time, the Iraqi government has uh, recaptured all of the areas known as the disputed territories. They're called that because Kurds think they should be part of Kurdistan and uh, Iraqis think they should be part of the rest of Iraq. Right now, the uh, federal Iraqi army is pressing on the area of Fishkabur, which is um, a little place which I've been to, predominantly Christian, where the Syrian the Iraqi and the Turkish borders meet. Uh What they're hoping to do, the federal Iraqi government, is to close off Kurdistan's control over that area, which would eliminate its prospects of having an independent energy policy, which would underpin its prospects of independence. And at the same time, what would happen is that the Turkish government would gain control over an area which is the sole uh, place through which the Kurds of Syria currently enjoy um, an unrecognized form of autonomy. In short, what, we're about, what we may be about to witness is the defeat of both the Kurds of Iraq and the Kurds of Syria, who are supposed to be America's allies. And the reason this has happened is because the United States government has colluded with the Iranian government in quashing the Kurds' mm. project for independence. It's worse than that. There's a, a project afoot to try and divide the Kurdistan region itself into two portions, one based on the province of Sulaymaniyah, the other based in the areas known as Erbil and Duhok. The city of Kirkuk, what is it about that city that is seemingly kind of holding a, a, a linchpin status at this point? 
Multiple factors. The world knows it's the site of, uh, I think, the second largest combined set of oil fields in the world. Though um, its importance as as a set of oil fields is progressively declining because it's been running since the mid-1920s. Secondly, it's it's a set inside a province which is overwhelmingly Kurdish, but the city itself is multi-ethnic. It contains both Kurds, Arabs, uh, and Turkmen, and it also uh, historically contained a a significant Christian community, now now much diminished. Over um, the entire history of post-colonial Iraq, Kirkuk was controversial because Kurds argued it was part of historic Kurdistan, mm-hmm. and it was. You can see 19th century maps in which Kirkuk is firmly seen inside Ottoman Kurdistan. Iraqis, by contrast, particularly Arab Iraqis, wanted to prevent Kirkuk from ever being under Kurdish control, not only because of the wealth, but because they believed that that would underpin the prospects of Kurdish independence. It is amazing when you think about what we're seeing in the world right now, of a variety of these types of instances where people believe that X part of territory believe, is believed to be theirs. They want to separate from the from the larger government entity, thinking Catalonia and Spain right now, what we've seen with Russia uh, as well. Seemingly, it feels like we're seeing this more and more than ever before. I don't think we can definitely say there's a global increase in incidents in these questions. There, there have always been uh, these kinds of um, disputed territories. Right. But in this case, there was a constitutional agreement embedded in the constitution of Iraq known as Article 140. And under Article 140, a set of arrangements were put in place to rectify some of what Saddam's dictatorship had done. Right. Under Saddam, Kurds were expelled from Kirkuk. Uh, Kurds and Turkmen were forced to become Arabs. They had to change their names by deed poll. Uh, there was a whole restructuring of the boundary of the province of Kirkuk, which in effect was a gerrymander to maximize the number of Arabs inside Kirkuk and mm-hmm. to minimize the number of Kurds. And in the constitution, there was a set of arrangements to unwind all of those things that had occurred under Saddam right. and to complete Uh, the resolution of the status of the territory by holding a referendum. Now, all of that was to be completed by the end of December of 2007. So one way of interpreting what's just gone on, and it's an accurate way of interpreting it, is that Kurds ran out of patience with the federal Iraqi government's commitment to respecting the constitution. They held a referendum not only in their recognized area, but also in the disputed territories to show that there was support for these areas joining Kurdistan. Right. And that has been um, overturned by force. And as you were telling me beforehand, that the idea of of what Iraq believes uh, it to be its responsibility under its constitution is not really what is playing out. Well, the the federal Iraqi Prime Minister Haider Abadi makes much of the point that he's upholding Iraq's constitution. For me, this is uh, very close to a sick joke. There are 144 articles in Iraq's constitution. 55 of those have been expressly violated, and a further further 12 have not been implemented. Just to give uh, American listeners two clear examples that they'll all understand. You can't be a federation unless you have a federal second chamber to represent the territories of the relevant state. Right. That was provided for in the Constitution. It still doesn't exist 12 years after the Constitution was ratified. 
You can't be a federation unless you have a proper Supreme Court. You need a Supreme Court to regulate uh, and adjudicate disputes between the federal government and the state's government. And you need to decide what the Constitution actually provides for. That federal Supreme Court doesn't exist. There is a court. It's left over from the transitional arrangements, but it's not the court that was mandated by the Constitution. So we have this uh, almost uh, Orwellian uh, moment in which the uh, uh, Iraqi government, together with its American supporters, are saying that Iraq is a federation. Well, you can't be a federation if you don't have a second chamber and if you don't have a federal Supreme Court. So instead what we have is... Uh, the equivalent of a majoritarian despotism inside Baghdad. And we have a rival center of authority in Kurdistan. And what's needed, in my view, is international mediation, uh, according to the provisions of the Constitution, to see if we can uh, have a a peaceful and amicable resolution of of the multiple disputes that remain unresolved. What's interesting is, in in terms of the referendum vote, it was almost unanimous. I mean, it was like 93 or 94 percent of the people said that they they wanted freedom from Iraq, which is interesting when compared to what we talked about earlier this week about Catalonia Catalonia and Spain, where it was almost 50-50. Yes. There's there's two major differences. One, the level of support and uh, near unanimity for independence in Kurdistan must be contrasted with what's occurring in Catalonia. And secondly, Spain does have a constitution. It does have a constitutional court. That constitutional court has arguably been unwise in rejecting modifications of Catalonia's autonomy that would have probably left most Catalans satisfied. But in Iraq's case, the constitution in its opening preface defined Iraq as a voluntary union of land and people. And what Kurds understood themselves to be doing in 2005 when they ratified the constitution was committing themselves to Iraq provided the constitution worked. And because it was a voluntary entry, they could voluntarily withdraw if the constitutional promise was not upheld. So the cases are distinctly different. And and so the expectation of this being, what, 12 years later and still no Supreme Court and, and, as you mentioned, other elements as well – it feels like the Kurds have come to the point where they have no expectation this will ever happen, and that's part of the reason why they want to have their freedom from Iraq. Exactly. Imagine entering a marital contract where there are a whole series of provisions apart from love and sex and children, <laughs> but uh, c- commit- commitments on, on, on property and, right. and everything else. Right. And 12 years later, one partner has not lived up to their promises and yet says the other must stay in the marriage, come what may, because they signed on the, on the bottom line. Some people would say that we see a little bit of that in the U.S. here right right now. Uh, we're joined by Brendan O'Leary of the, the University of Pennsylvania. He's also actually a, a constitutional advisor to Kurdistan's regional government. I, I, what are you hearing f- from that government as to how they will approach this moving forward? Because obviously there is tension. Is the tension rising to the level of significant military issue? There, there has already been uh violent uh, conflict between both the federal Iraqi army uh, forces and the Shiite militias that back them, that are Iranian-trained and Iranian-run, and Kurdish forces. Uh, What I hear from my friends in Kurdistan are, are two prime concerns. One, is there a project afoot in Baghdad which is quietly approved of by the American and British governments? 
to partition the Kurdistan region into two entities, one based on those who collaborated in the overthrow of Kurdish control of Kirkuk, and the other based on uh, the section of Kurdistan, which has historically been loyal Uh to the Kurdistan Democratic Party. That's fear number one. Evidence for that fear is that the Iraqi parliament just passed a budget law, and in that budget law, they did not name the Kurdistan region by its official name and title. (laughs) Instead, they referred to the Kurdish provinces, uh, perhaps foreshadowing an effort to divide uh, Kurdistan into three distinct provinces. So that's fear number one. The The second fear is that the military conflict is not going to halt at the boundaries of the Kurdistan region, but instead there's going to be an overall conquest of all of Kurdistan by federal Iraqi forces, in which case there would be an eradication of Kurdistan's regional autonomy and an attempt to go back to what many Americans and British people supported during the coalition provisional authority regime, namely an Iraq based on 18 provinces in which there would be no regions and no Kurdistan region. What is the benefit, though, as you kind of laid out with the U.S. government right now and and potentially the British government? What benefit do they see from being supportive of Iraq in this case? They have an illusion, a profound illusion. They believe that Prime Minister Abadi is their man in Baghdad. They believe that the um, Dawa party is an Iraqi nationalist party. And therefore, they have the illusion that by backing this government in Baghdad, they have a government in Baghdad that is anti-Iranian or at least balances against Iran. I think that's an illusion because the Dawah party from which the prime minister comes is a Shiite religious party. Um, The idea that Abadi comes from some secular bloc of Iraqi nationalists is risible. He's a, uh, a sectarian. He's a sectarian with much better manners than Maliki, whom he replaced. But... It is the British and the American illusion that Abadi is their man, and if they if they retain influence in Baghdad, that will be useful to balance against Iran. So, so the reason I think this is almost insane is that <laughs> the political parties that dominate in Baghdad at the moment are Iraqi Shia parties, all of whom are historically sympathetic to or historically organized from Iran. So the idea that there are natural allies or our allies in any sense is meaningless. And the appropriate American and British response was not necessarily to back Kurdish independence, but to solidly back mediation and resolution between the two of them, instead of which, in effect, they took sides. And in effect, they armed the Iraqi federal forces, which passed on much of the weaponry to the Iranian-trained militia. So uh, the the other couple of entities in this, uh, Turkey, Syria, Iran, what are their roles in all of this right now? And, you know, where are their potential benefits uh, of, of seeing either a united Iraq as, you know, Kurdistan comes underneath their control or a separate entity? So Iran is very content right now. It has a government in Baghdad that it's very happy with. It's uh, succeeded in dividing the Kurds and manipulating one faction of them. And uh, it believes, in consequence, that it has a strategic route all the way from Tehran to the Mediterranean. If you think of um, Iranian influence in Iraq, you then extend that through Syria, where um, the Alawite regime of um, President Bashar al-Assad has survived. And we now have an Iranian um, dominated zone all the way 
from uh, historic Persia to the Mediterranean. So Iran is delighted. America is doing everything possible to meet Iranian objectives and spending American money to do it, handing over um, high-quality equipment to the federal Iraqi government, which hands them over to uh, Shia militia trained, trained in Iran. So Iran's content. Syria, the Syrian regime has recovered from the civil war, uh, but it does not control all of its territory. It's almost certainly predictable next step will be to try and remove the autonomy won by the Kurds of Syria. The Turks did not want an independent Kurdistan, but initially they appeared uh, to be much more relaxed about the prospect than the Iraqis or the Iranians. And when it became plain that the Iraqis were going to crush the Kurdistan region, the uh, Turks slightly equivocated. They don't want to see a comprehensive erosion Mm -hmm. of Kurdish autonomy. And there they're driven by self-interest. Turkey um, historically benefited from significant exports of oil and gas from Iraq. When Iraq got taken over by predominantly Shia parties, they developed the southern oil fields. And they began to see the Kurds in the north as more reliable and stable (laughs) allies. So the question now will be whether Turkey tries to bypass the Kurdistan authorities and makes a settlement with the Shia-dominated parties in Baghdad. Is the the Kurdistan government, is it, I should say, is the country, or I should say is the region itself built significantly up where Kurdistan can live on its own if if there's some deal done with, with right. Iraq? It could live on its own either as a uh, one entity in a confederation. It could live on its own as a region if its constitutional rights were respected. Right. And it could live on its own if it were to be independent. It does have domestic questions, um, the necessity for significant internal reform. It does have deep internal divisions, but in terms of material standard of living, in terms of education, in terms of the status of women, all of the things you would expect to be important in building a a modern developed uh, economy, Kurdistan has those. But it can't have them if it's if it's unable to exploit and develop its own natural resources and if it's in effect conquered. Uh, from the outside. It's amazing how uh, as much as you have this back and forth is that oil is still the driving force uh, of this and and how important it is. I mean, when you think about if Kirkuk is is that significant on on oil, that could end up being a significant part of a quote-unquote government and an economic principle for Kurdistan to be able to move forward. There are um, compromise possibilities uh, available if the American government, our government, were to use its influence properly. It says it supports a strong Kurdistan regional government inside a federal and democratic Iraq. Well, let's see the color of their money on that. Uh, Do they recognize the the right of the Kurdistan region to exist? Do they recognize that the disputed territories are still disputed? In which case, how do they recommend uh, resolving their disputed status? In the case of Kirkuk, there was always available a compromise because in the constitution, Kurds and Arabs all agreed that previously exploited fields, fields that were in production before the making of the constitution, the revenues from those would be shared across Iraq as a whole. So there was no fundamental dispute there over how the revenues would be organized. There continues to be a dispute over questions of 
ownership and control because what the Constitution did was to prevent the federal government from having any exclusive ownership or control rights over natural resources. And in effect, what the Abadi government is doing is pretending that those provisions don't exist and acting as if the laws that were in existence under Saddam Hussein are still valid. That's, by the way, one of the essential reasons why a proper Supreme Court is required sure, so that yeah. you could have proper adjudication of these questions. Well, you mentioned uh, about the, the potential role of the United States would be in a best case scenario to help provide some level of mediation, have the two sides talking to one another. Uh, do you, do you think that mediation is a potential in the formula of what's going on right now, whether it's the United States stepping in and doing that or the two sides potentially coming together in general? We know that the French government is interested in playing a mediation okay. role. And right. France, of course, has an historic role in Syria. Yeah. Um, the British and the Americans are suspect, frankly, from the point of view of Kurds now because they so overtly took the side of the federal government in the dispute between uh, Baghdad and Iraq, though their their participation in properly structured dialogue and mediation would obviously be welcome. Uh, I think what would be required is some internationalization of the mediation mm -hmm. so that you have independent constitutional experts and independent federal experts that, that do their best to try and resolve these questions. Um, that's still possible. Uh, what the American government can also do is to put its money where its mouth is. Are the Kurds our allies? If they are, why are they undersupplied with appropriate weaponry to prevent them from being coerced? Right. Why are we supplying tanks uh, and other weaponry that gets transferred to Iranian-backed militias? I, I want to repeat that. To Iranian-backed militias. Yeah. General Qasim uh, Soleimani, uh, a senior Iranian general, organized what happened in Kirkuk. Uh, at the very same time that the American government was telling us it, it's just a dispute between the federal Iraqi government and uh, Kurdistan. That was never so. We're joined by Brendan O'Leary of the University of Pennsylvania. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. How, how do you see this playing out? I, I mean, it's seemingly, this has been going on for a little while now. It doesn't feel like there's an immediate resolution in the offing here. There, it, it's, it's difficult to foresee the future, given yeah. how things have been so volatile in the last couple of months. Yeah. Nevertheless, there is one timetable ahead. There are supposed to be fresh uh, parliamentary elections in Iraq as a whole in the spring. Okay. One of the projects that drove American and British policy was the belief that they needed the Kurds to be in the Iraqi parliament in order to back a body being returned to the premiership. Okay. Now, it seems to me likely that because of Abadi's um, overseeing success against ISIS and success in repressing the Kurds, his prospects of being returned to office among the Shia is quite high. And moreover, he doesn't any longer need the British or the Americans. He may try, however, to carve out a clientelistic relationship with some of the collaborationist Kurds who participated in the overthrow of Kurdish control in, in Kirkuk. If he did that, he would perhaps have sufficient um, 
Kurds to build himself into a strong position to form the new government. Mm -hmm. But if that didn't happen, if there were properly free and fair elections in Kurdistan for the Iraqi parliamentary elections, I would predict that that collaborationist faction would be wiped out electorally. Right. Uh, it wouldn't necessarily mean that the Kurdistan Democratic Party would would uh, be extraordinarily successful, but those who supported the referendum in general would would prevail. So we would then have a block of Kurds inside the federal Iraqi parliament intent on trying to enforce Kurdish rights. So we have that coming up on on the horizon. Yeah. We also have coming up on the horizon what is going to happen to the autonomy of the Kurds of Syria. Uh, is the um, is the government in Syria going to try and impose its authority just in the same way as the federal Iraqi government has coercively imposed its authority on its Kurds? Right. Now, if that happens, I think the um, impetus for some kind of intervention by the Security Council will be considerable because the U.S. has interests at stake, Russia has interests at stake, um, and obviously all of the, the regional powers have an interest. So it's conceivable you could get an international conference to resolve all these questions in a joint way. Well, it's interesting because, as you mentioned, France, uh, Emmanuel Macron is, is definitely trying to take a larger role on the global scope. This is not the first time he's looked to, to try and step in and to mediate an, right. issue, an issue. So what's your reaction to, to what he is trying to do in general right now? I think his role has been, and those of the civil servants advising him, has so far been very constructive. His position is that there should be mediation according to the terms of the Iraqi constitution. Right. That has been resisted by the British, I, I believe, from sources uh, close to what happened in the UN Security Council. It's ambiguous what America's position is, though formally it appears to support a negotiation according to the terms of Iraq's constitution. Right. It, would nice, it would be nice to see some credible demonstration of that. What's the status of ISIS in that in that part of the world? Because obviously that's that's still a concern uh, of yeah. of people there, of here in the United States. Uh, what is the status of ISIS right now? ISIS as a state is comprehensively defeated. Okay, they control no major city. They control no significant territory. You're not a state unless you have um, territory and a, a monopoly of force in that area. They're terminated as a state. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean they don't continue to exist as a worldwide ideology uh, that generates support for jihadists everywhere, including um, the lunatic from uh, Uzbekistan who caused mayhem in Manhattan recently. But the idea that um, ISIS is a major threat as a state force, that is no longer um, to be treated credibly. But we have a, a deeply estranged and alienated Sunni Arab community in Syria, mm -hmm. which was progressively mobilized behind jihadist causes in the course of the civil war. And the Sunni Arabs of Iraq largely supported and collaborated with ISIS uh, because they felt so estranged from the Shia-dominated regime in Baghdad. So the circumstances that gave rise to support for ISIS in the Sunni Arab communities in both of those areas, those still exist. Uh, and until there is a, a political accommodation of the Sunni Arabs, a majority in Syria, mm -hmm. and the Sunni Arabs, a minority in Iraq, we will continue to see extensive violence. Great seeing you again, Brendan. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. All the best. Brendan O'Leary from the University of Pennsylvania uh, joining us here in studio. We will take a break. Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.com. 
www.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.